Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash AOIAAS. Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at IM8Bit.com. Hi, I'm Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today I spoke with Oleksa Lazocek, who is a Canadian composer who I've known uh, for, for many years and has a truly fascinating story growing up in Canada, getting involved in a hyper kind of eclectic combination of musical influences before eventually making his way kind of sideways into the game industry. He worked at a studio that was part of Capcom, and he spent many years writing on the Dead Rising franchise. His stories of the music production and compositional approach to that was really amazing, genuinely inspiring. And then, of course, uh, we end our conversation with his discussion of working on the Horizon Forbidden West franchise on the sequel. Uh, and he's just bursting with insight and pearls of wisdom. And it was one of those conversations that I feel incredibly fired up afterward and uh, hope you do too. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Alexa, thanks for being here, man. It's been a while, Austin. <laughs> I know. You know what's funny? My Facebook memories today reminded me of when you were last uh, in LA, I assume for like the HMMAs perhaps, but it was one year ago today that no, I took right. a selfie in my studio, and or at least it was one year ago today that you shared the photo. That's uh, right. It was literally a year ago because the... Uh... I remember having chicken wings right beside your studio after <laughs> yeah. in the back, back out kind of that restaurant behind you and stuff. So that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, I was, it was one of those where I, I don't, I'm super inconsistent with my checking of Facebook these days. So I like, there's a lot of these kind of annual memory reminders that I kind of don't see. I just don't look for like a week at a time, but I happened to look this morning and it was like, it was this weird, you know, like, seeing the present and the future and the past all at once yeah. uh, of uh, the last time you were here. That's actually uh, kind of crazy because that, that means a year ago, I remember you telling me about the musical stuff, but nothing was released publicly. It was like just a, <laughs> yeah, 
there's been a lot of that. A lot has happened in a year, right? It's crazy. (laughs) I've mentioned a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of people that I told it to, and then they would be like, whatever happened with that? Because I mentioned like three years ago, you know, when we were still like randomly, like they just ask, hey, what are you doing today? And like, oh, I'm in a writing session or whatever. Just was this thing that was kind of cooking along steadily for so long. It was five years by the time it launched. Congrats, by the way, on the uh, Grammy nom for that. Well well (laughs) deserved. It's awesome. And I think it occurs to me that almost certainly by the time this is public, the results of that will have been, will be known. Right. So uh, either thank you or better luck next time, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Uh, It's uh, all good. It's all good. uh, The recognition for uh, the giant, giant feat that you guys accomplished. So, yeah. Well, that's very, that's very kind, man. It always means a lot when... Um, like fellow travelers, as it were, you know, colleagues in the trenches who really understand this stuff, both musically and the the systems, the underlying systems, uh, really kind of any kind words that come from a very like peer to peer sort of way always carry a lot of weight with me. It's always why every year, for example, at GDC and the gang awards yeah. always feels very uh, significant because it's like, this is the home team. These are the people that really get it, that really do the same exact thing that I do, you know? And yeah, and no, it was cool. Like, cool as far as me, it was cool because at, uh, at game sound con, you presented kind of, I had seen some clips and you had shared some stuff in terms of the, the branching and the nesting and kind of how complex yeah. the whole stray gods was, but to <laughs> actually see it come to life, to actually see the response, to kind of see that, like, the madness. Even, well, the madness was there and there was complexity there, but at the end of the day, the kernel of the idea is what still people were excited about and that's what they responded to. And to me, that's that's the big win. Like, yeah, sure, you could have a giant, you know, rat's nest of like logic and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like people who love musical theater, who love gaming, who love this kind of stuff, walked away and just like, hey, this is novel. So I think that's the big win for me. Well, I appreciate that. That that is in uh, pretty directly the the goal, you know, was just to say let's just try something that, as far as we can tell, no one's ever really tried. You know, yeah. I don't ever. I'm always extremely hesitant to say that we're the first to ever, because you know, the only way to make that true is to whittle it down to this obscure. Like we're the first person to ever stand on one leg while looking right. north. While like you have to add so many kind of specifics to genuinely own it, and then honestly, yeah. even then. There's billions of people in the world and like hundreds of billions historically. If you go back far enough, probably someone has tried it. Uh, But we really couldn't find any games, like especially when we were getting ready to release, we're starting to uh, think about marketing and you you start to analyze what are the other kind of comps on the market. You know, it's kind of like if you're house hunting and you're trying to gauge the price, you look for similar size and age and upkeep and whatever comparable neighborhood and placement and all that stuff and to try to build some sense of what to reasonably compare it with. And we really came up pretty dry. There's there's a few games that had uh, musical theater-esque singing kind of built into them on some way or a level, but usually yeah. it was either interstitial cutscenes or a thing that plays in tandem with gameplay, but you don't really have any actual control over in any narrative sense. It's like... Yeah. It's a you different know, beast. It's it was yeah. So it was I just really it was one of those where I said I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we may have done something novel. But yeah. in any case, well, very kind of you. But I'm all too happy to make this conversation entirely <laughs> about you. Uh, first, for let's start. I want to start 
the exact same way I did with my conversation with Gustavo Santalaya. Sure. Which is, can you tutorialize for me? Because I've never actually definitively felt like I had this correct. Can you tutorialize how to pronounce your last name? Last name. Well, it okay. So depends if you want to do it like how Ukrainians say it, or so there's. Well, let me also, ask it. How do you say it? And then, and then well, we can broaden it to a more historic just, or like you know sure, ethnically sure. accurate, I guess. So I, let me start with the first name because that's what everybody actually says wrong. I've had everything from like Ascalo to Xlax to Alustra, the fat, <laughs> fat soluble. Uh, Xlax you know, uh, is pretty excellent. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and most people actually, because there's no uh, K before S in the English language. Right, it looks like Aleska if you're not. Yeah, and so everybody says Aleska. Um, sometimes Alustra. Um, like, remember that fat fat replacement that they were trying to put in chips for a yeah, while? That's so funny. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so the first name is actually Alexa. And I, now it's kind of cool because with Amazon Alexa, I just say, you know, Amazon Alexa, just change the A to an O. And yeah, right. It. That's good. Um, and then last name, I just say Lazochuk. Um, and the I guess the accents would be on the Z, so on the Z, I guess. Lazochuk. Yeah, but uh, Chuck, I guess. Um, but in Ukrainian, it would be my Lozovchuk, basically. It's the first part, Loza, is actually my family's name. It's uh, the root is willow, uh, huh. like the willow tree and stuff. So Loza, yeah, Lozovchuk. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's one of those where I probably heard you say it the very first time we met many years ago. Right. And then ever since then, especially these, you know, that kind of like Polish you know, Slovenian, Ukrainian, Russian, the whole kind of Slavic, Eastern yeah. edge. Yeah. Slavic. Those are so like impenetrable to me as a, as a white bread American, uh, uh, that, um, uh, at some point I just realized, I just think of you as Alexa. It's like you're Alexa L <laughs> and I, and I thought I, I like to, I like to own my deficiencies, uh, as outwardly as possible on this podcast and in life. Uh, so that's good. So Lazochek. Yep. It's interesting that the the big differentiator is the kind of, I guess, the westernized or like a- anglicized is treating the W as a W instead of pronounce, like you, because you said Lazovchek when you. Yeah, talk. well, Lazovchuk, it's Lizov- actually Chuk. Yeah, so uh, um, it's like a, a B uh, in, in Cyrillic is like a V. So right. Lazovchuk, yeah. But I don't, I, I never say that. Most people are just like Alexa, you know. Yeah, more X-Lax. Yeah, well, I try to avoid those. But the funniest is actually people that I've worked with for multiple years, some of them still say Aleska. And I'm like, I I don't have the heart to say it sometimes. Yeah, it's like like a Seinfeld episode where you're just past the point of sort of decorum for correcting them. Totally. And it's just it's just like there's no point in making a big deal of it. So (laughs) but I haven't had illustrious. I was one previous employer guy who used to bug me. I I worked in the communication department uh, for a summer during like high school. Um, And my boss was this hilarious guy, but he would just totally make fun of me all the time. And that was his nickname for me was illustra. So that's too funny. Well, and the grand irony to all of that is that despite the sort of um, family history i think of you as as when i you know when i kind of make my mental catalog of folks i know around the world you're one of my you know one of our sort of brothers to the north so the great um the great uh sort of funny thing with all of that is that uh, you are a canadian 
uh, fellow game industry traveler. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't we start with that and just uh, give me, me a, a kind of rundown on, because actually you must have told me, but I can't actually remember. So I, this is me not just teeing you up for the betterment of the audience, but actually I can't really remember what that initial spark was that got you into music, you know, everyone has their various flavors of that childhood moment or that yeah. that concert they went to or that movie they watched or whatever, uh, you know, where, where did music come into your life? And then how did that eventually pave the way to games specifically since it's such a novel subset of music? Sure. Um, I grew up in a musical family. My mom was a, a choir director, music teacher, um, we have artists kind of all actually even going back to our family in the Carpathian mountains in Ukraine, they were all artisans basically. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I grew up, I started classical violin, uh, at the age of three. Um, in fact, my wife and I, uh, Kara and I, after we got married, we realized we grew up in the same city and we realized that we were in the same, uh, Suzuki class at three years old. Uh, we didn't know. So that was kind of cool. So are there any photos by chance? Uh, like no, no, but we did have the. Uh, we knew it because we had a recital, uh, a recital booklet from you know when we were. Th I guess that would have been nineteen seventy nine. Um, so that's kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, I did. That's amazing. Started off with violin. Um, did that until grade six. I pretty much from basically from when I was kind of very young, like a year or two years old. I music was just something very innate for me. Um, I, my mom would wake us up every morning, turning on Pachelbel's Canon or like um, Slavic choral music or like folk music from around the world or like different stuff as a way to wake us up. Um, so it was very kind of part of our world. Um, and then, you know, I did classical violin until grade six. But what ended up happening is my teachers got frustrated with me because I would always be, I'd be playing these etudes and other stuff. And then I'd be making, changing the parts and making up things on the spot and they'd get frustrated. <laughs> and then I ended up kind of, um, there wasn't like a concert or a moment. It was just, it was, I was so drawn to it. So, um, we would go to live shows, um, and I would just stand in front of the bands for hours, just, just soaking it in. Just like, I remember being in like, you know, elementary school, everybody else would be noodling around doing other stuff. And I'd be drawing like album covers of what would be my future albums. <laughs> with lyrics. Like it was kind of like spandex rockers and, and, you know, you know, 12 piece drum kits and all that kind of stuff. But that world uh, was very attractive to me. And it was a world that I just, I remember staying up uh, recording radio station feeds um, for mm -hmm. songs because I couldn't, I'd go to the public library and get rent cassettes, basically. Uh, um, I remember listening to like Sig Sig Sputnik and like all these, or I remember Kiss uh, had some uh, albums that I would listen, Detroit Rock City and stuff like that. Wow. Very eclectic range. Yeah. I remember even um, I, when I was in grade five, I think, or four, uh, my best friend and I, he ended up getting a Casio keyboard and we would take pots and pans, Casio keyboard, and he had a nylon guitar and we would detune it so we could do power chords and other stuff. And we'd just start writing songs and we'd just, uh, we would write songs and record them on the Casio with like beats and like guitars and that kind of stuff. And eventually we, um, you know, I had older siblings, so I would be exposed to like punk rock groups like SNFU and other, this kind of stuff. So then eventually that turned into like, 
uh, a love for more of the edgy indie kind of uh, vibe or and then um yeah that just kind of progressed and then in high school um i had a cousin who was an actress um and she wanted to do a folk pop album and people had kind of known that i was a multi-instrumentalist i taught myself to play I think from the age of three, I started teaching myself to play piano and kind of every other instrument after that. And, um, and then I just, it just became part of my life. It just consumed every part of my life. Basically. Um, I did sports and lots of that kind of stuff, but really when it came to high school, it was super into that. And then when my cousin asked me to produce her folk pop album, um, it was the first time I got to really dig in at a studio on a studer 24, track two inch reel to reel full i get to I that's get a to huge leap i mean that's a that's a well i had like at home my dad because he was the executive director of a choral federation so i they had like a set of like sennheiser mics that they would record choirs with that i get to borrow but it basically had it like nine of the time yeah, right, like, yeah and we had re, he had like some uh ure um reel to reel and I had a Fostex four track and I would just like sit in my room for hours and hours and hours writing songs, recording songs. Um, so that was kind of my 10,000 hours. Yeah. Um, right. Right. So when the cousin asks for this, you I was already been, at a, you yeah, would already I, kind of put your, yeah. Okay. That makes way more sense then. Cause I was going to say, good Lord to go straight into a studio and skip the kind of garage production. Uh, but I see you, you had already done that for, I had done that for a years. long time and, and I'd played a bands. I was in grade nine. Uh, I was the leader of a band called the family dog. And basically it was all a bunch of grade 12 guys. And they they realized I, I could sing and write stuff. And so I was the front man of this band. I remember our first gig, I was in grade nine and we were paid in bar tickets for rum and Coke. And I'm basically hanging out with all these college, you know, university people <laughs> I'm in grade nine. Right. And, uh, so that was kind of my world was like, I was advanced. Is that as illegal it. there as it would be here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was the prairies is, it was in Saskatchewan and Regina and it's kind of like, you know, Holy crap. Yeah. I've been there. That's so funny. That's yeah. yeah. I went to Moose Jaw and I had to fly into Regina yeah. uh, and then drive for two hours or whatever. And it was, that was, that was, I, I, you know, having been through Kansas and seeing like what flat plains in America mm-hmm. was like, I said, this, this feels like it has it beat because it really does feel like it's eternity. It's like being on the moon. Oh, literally you go for, I remember growing up, you, you would drive for eight, nine hours to the next uh, province over to Calgary. And it's literally, you could just go in a straight line. Yeah. And, right. And you see no mountains and I mean a little bit, but not much, but um, so there was a charm growing up there because the the quality of the sunshine actually was some people have said it's even better than some parts of Egypt because you have like 180 degrees of of um, right. balancing like of sun rays and yeah. the arc and the quality of light so there was a lot of great things about growing up and actually I think the richness and the the ability to to lean deeply into music in large part was because the community as simple as it was it was a lot of farm communities and the community was quite um, I don't know, not pretentious, right? Yeah, it, sure. It wasn't, it wasn't ac- high academia. There was academics and there was a lot of great culture and stuff. Um, um, but it was just an environment which was like, there's not a whole lot else to do. And so if you find something you're passionate in, it was, it was a great way to like dive deep into that. Um, anyways, coming back to the high school thing. Um, yeah, I was in the studio. The project was a couple months. Uh, got to bring in musicians, friends, 
go through the whole product. I mean, this was back when we had sample cell and we were like oh. syncing like two tra- uh, two inch reel to reels with like weird MIDI and all this other stuff just to get like re-triggering kick drums and yeah, like really basic like, clocking stuff, basically. Yeah. Basic clocking stuff. But I, I loved it so much. And I was just like, this is what I want to do. And uh, so then it came time to finish high school. Was that a and- serious, that, that was going to be one of my questions is when that moment became, I love this. It's my favorite hobby to this should be what I do with my life. It was, it sounds like it was right at that. What like age, what 13, 14, yeah, 15. Probably, yeah, exactly. It, and it wasn't so much that it was like, uh, this is what I need to do for my life as much as just, this is what I do anyways. And right. it was, it was more of a, when it came to like grade 12 and being like, what am I going to, what am I going to do in for university? It was like, um, I didn't want to go to music school because I didn't want to be told what to do for music. Right. And so I ended up choosing to go to film school. I did my bachelor's in filmmaking and my master's in filmmaking actually afterwards. So, so I, I had a different way to get into music, into games. I ended up basically, like I said, doing the film route, moved to Montreal after got married. Um, we had a couple kids in Montreal, um, stayed there, worked in the film industry for, um, quite a few years. Um, I was doing commissions for like uh, choirs and orchestras and chamber groups and that kind of stuff. And then I also was doing a lot of sound design and and, um, post-production work for uh, Inuit filmmakers. Um, There's a company called Izuma there that did the Fast Runner at Tanajwat that won at Cannes. And so it was kind of a cool uh, kind of pocket that I sat in, in that Montreal scene, because mm-hmm. musically I was doing stuff that I wanted to, I had a, I had a album called bright sadness, which I had produced there. And that was kind of my launching port into more serious writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was all after nine 11 basically. And, um, but in the professional realm, I was kind of in the film and TV world, uh, scoring some films, TV series, um, I was working for a company out there also uh, called Dasmo, and they're kind of like the major music house for all of the Quebec films because mm. Quebec has its own unique industry and its own cultural repository of films and all that like kind of everything. stuff. Everything. I mean, it's just it's sort of two countries in one, basically. Very much. And it's distinct from like other Frank- Francophonie like, um, countries like France or other countries oh, yeah. that are around the world. It's like an interesting um, – and from my limited experience, and I'm certainly no expert – it feels very Venn diagram where yeah, like I have a friend who lives in Montreal, who's kind of a French Canadian pop star. And yeah. so naturally she's pretty big in Canada and she, most of her songs are in French. So she's yeah. most popular in Montreal and Quebec city and places like that. But she's also r- pretty, she could do a tour in France and actually, you know, sell shows properly yeah. um, because of that overlap, despite her, I don't think she would, she, it's not like she culturally is French. It's definitely Canadian. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a fa- I find it very fascinating because there's no, I can't really think of any corollary to that anywhere in the world where it's, there's sort of such a strong stamp on one country by another, but it's still, it's still very much two distinct places at the same time. It even is, Montreal you know, doesn't feel like Paris. No, Montreal, like even- and, Mon- and Montreal has its own vibe also, right? And its own kind of like offshoots of their own kind of music scene and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, we were in... We were there uh, for quite a bit. And then in 2005, just at the end of 2005, I had a friend uh, from high school that I played on the volleyball team together with. <laughs> he was he was a programmer at EA. He had worked on, like uh, I think, MVP was the baseball uh, franchise for the MLB that they were doing. 
they were starting up a new studio called Blue Castle Games. He knew I was in audio post-production and, and stuff like that. And he also knew that I was had a kind of life in music and composition and scoring for film and TV. And he was like, um, I was doing a commission for the Vancouver Symphony for the Olympics at the time. And I was going to be coming out to Vancouver. He's like, we're starting a new studio. We have no audio person. You should probably apply and come out and do an interview. And anyways, I applied, came down, did the interview in between the dress rehearsals for the, the, the <laughs> Vancouver Symphony. Literally, it was like this. I show up for the interview and, uh, and they're like, um, you know, they liked my, my demo. I had reskinned some mass effect trailer and redone the sound design, redone the music and the whole bit enough to get an interview. And, uh, the president, Rob Barrett, um, he, he loves classical music and all different kinds of music. And he also knew I had a separate career in music and really appreciated that. Um, so I'm in the interview and they're asking me questions and, and they're like, okay, you know, like, so if you had to like build a speech system from scratch, what would you, how would you go about? And you have to remember, I have zero experience in, in like game development, uh, audio for games. I, I wouldn't consider myself a gamer. I, I mean, I played Commodore 64 and the original Nintendo and ColecoVision and that kind of stuff, but I'm not like a hardcore gamer. I'm like, you know, Rat Race and Super Mario were kind of the extension or Ninja Gaiden, maybe, you know, at the arcade right. or something. Um, and, uh, and so anyways, on the spot, I'm just improvising. I'm like, well, I don't know. I maybe like, you know, take sentences and splice them up into words and maybe phonemes and then maybe, you know, database it. And I just riffed off it. And it was enough to be like, you, you, I don't have the perfect answer, but they're like, they liked the fact that I was like, I was thinking outside of the box. And I even said at one point during the, I was like, I don't even really like games to be honest with you. Uh, but I said, I love the challenge. I know it's like the thing never to say, but I was just like kind of a fish out of water. It's and the just the most like, honest it, version of the job interview question where you go, I guess my biggest fault is I just care too much. <laughs> well, I, well, the other thing was, so it was, it was a weird thing, but, but I was able to basically convince them that, like, I love challenges. I love being creative and I love st stretching myself. And this is, this would be an amazing opportunity, you know, and convinced them enough that they hired me and moved my kids and my wife basically, you know, three months later. And then I would basically for five years, I didn't touch any music at all uh, while I worked on. Tried to build that damn dialogue system. Well, everything. I was like, all I, I was working on the bigs, bigs two, MLB two K. I would be go, flying to Safeco, recording surround sound, crowd recordings for like Chance and you know, wow, all this kind of stuff. Building a whole arcade baseball game sound palette from the beginning. And um, so, anyways, I did that stuff during the day, um, and then at nights I was moonlighting and um, scoring films and TV and doing some, uh, what's the word, uh, ghostwriting for LA, uh, writers and on films and TV series and stuff. Cause you know, had young kids had to pay for a couch or pay for other stuff that, and the day job just wasn't enough. So I would just do that. I, I remember, uh, when we first met, cause you were working at, uh, Capcom, uh, yeah. I think like, so we'll get to yeah, the, we'll that get, next yeah. chapter. Um, but I, I remember you, you, you had, you said that you had done some of that there too, where you were, cause I remember asking, you know, how did you ship this through your day job? But then that, and you were like, you know, just, I don't know, clock stops at five for one job and starts for the next kind of thing. And pretty well, much it, 
blew me away just the degree of hustle that that implied. I didn't realize it went all the way back. Like I didn't realize that that had started, you know, kind of at the beginning of your time in games. Yeah, it was insane to be honest with you. The first, I would say, the first five years. It was mostly commissions for like choirs and ensembles or artists that I would do. And then I started doing more TV series stuff. Um, I have a Canadian composer called Jeff Toyne. Yeah, um, I know Jeff. Yeah. Um, so he, I think he has, he spends time in LA as well, but I was helping him with. Uh, I think I met him in New York. I think he was working for Howard Shore. Uh, uh, or yeah, he had done a bunch of orchestration for a bunch of different uh, kind of A-list composers as well. Yeah. And he his own. So I was helping him, him with a bunch of series like Rogue um with Fanny Newton I think is mm-hmm. her name. Um, we did like three seasons of that and a bunch of other stuff um and but it was crazy because we had two young kids and it was I was working 90 100 hour weeks and it was just like it was crazy but eventually after five years of that um Inafune San the creator of Mega Man uh, from Capcom and Dead Rising they were looking for a, a new uh, you know a, a Western development team to make the sequel to Dead Rising. And they reached out to a couple different ones, and one of them was Blue Castle Games. And so the president, remember, who hired me originally, knew I had a life in music, but I was just doing audio at that time. He was like, hey, Inafunasan is coming. We need to do a pitch for this game because we want to do this thing. Can you write us? can you write a theme suite of, of music for it? And so I was like, yeah, sure. And I basically went out did a theme suite wrote it for it they came saw it looked at the game they loved it and he's like you're in charge of music from now on and that day literally i turned from you know audio lead audio director to main composer and music director and i kind of for a decade basically worked on i think 13 or 14 different dead rising titles kind of including main games and dlcs i even scored like the um Sony did a, 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 a feature film adaptation before it was all the rage. We did an, a feature film adaptation for Dead Rising for Sparkle. Or well, Sony, I think it was Crackle. Crackle, that's what right. it was called. The, the um, online platform that was yeah. one of the first to market, really, for original content. Yeah. So we did that. Um, I worked with um, Zach Lepofsky, who's uh, doing really well now. He was one of the top five contestants on um, uh, Spielberg's you know, when he was looking for the next top director in the world. Oh, yeah. So he was one of the top fives. And so we hit it off and that was fun and did that for many years. And uh, yeah. And then, <clears throat> yeah, I, I even ghosted on some other other game projects and other stuff during that time. But because it was one of those things where it was like, I was still killing it at work, like doing lots of stuff. But it was like, you know, you got a family. We had another kid at that point And it was just like, I have to like hustle to, you know, put them through school and yeah. pay for school lessons and stuff. So I, I, I totally get it. I, I find it amazing. You know, as somebody who I like to work hard, I like the satisfaction of sweat equity as they, as they call it. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I always, I, re- I have great respect for the, the kind of internal movements within the game industry to be very, very hesitant about anything that might be crunch uh, or that there, or also the kind of intrinsic uh, precedents that are set, you know, like when I talk to friends of mine who run game studios and they feel pressure to not work tons of hours because they, they don't want their employees to think that 
if they don't mirror the boss's hours. But I but I also look at it and I go, yeah, but part of the reason why they're the boss, they started a game company, is that they love it to the degree that they want to do it all the time. So of course yep. they're going to want to work 100 hours because it's their project. They have the most to lose if this thing collapses. You know, they lose their whole company plus the reputational damage of costing however many people their jobs, all that kind of stuff. So I said, so I always find it's a nuanced subject, but I definitely am cut from a similar cloth, I think, where it's like, how many hours can you squeeze in? Because this is, of all the things that you can spend 100 hours a week on, this is a great one, you know? Like, it, it's, yeah. not, it's not working in a coal mine or something where you're destroying your body and all these other things, and it's just, like, extremely grueling. I'm all for trying to mitigate you know that kind of work but this is you know the fundamental this is creative work this is interfacing with people that are exciting to you know to who challenge you you get to challenge them all that sort of thing so i have a soft spot i i you know it might be it might be a character flaw in the eyes of s some or many or all but i do have a soft spot for this kind of like nah man i i, I want to like i'm at that phase in my life it's certainly it's certainly you know you were probably what 20s through your 30s to, to when you were at the max burn like that as well that's like the right time for it too right yeah it, i was it was actually more a little older so it was more like later the upper 20s and 30s um because i'm 47 now um the you know it's funny that you bring that up because it is a nuance it is a very nuanced thing so i remember back in in the 2010 ish I remember EA, there was a group we were actually talking about. We had an audio hang with a bunch of audio directors last night in Vancouver. And we were talking about how at EA, they had to actually change the culture policy because there were so many divorces happening because, yeah. you know, there were EA is bigger because they had thousands of employees. And they, I think the wives literally took, uh, they had a, some kind of an action suit against EA and they won and it changed the culture and EA oh, ended up, they they did and they ended up, um, basically changing things in the sense that it, they managed how much overtime you could work and all this kind of stuff. So there's this one dynamic where it's like you have AAA dev studios of a couple hundred or thousands of people that are working who they have to manage that because it's like they need teams to other service games year after year and they, they can't burn people out. Like eventually they'll lose these people and they'll have attrition. On the flip side, like you're saying, then there's creatives like us who are like, this is this is a glorious work because it's like we're creative, get to work with musicians, you're writing stuff for awesome IPs and it's genuinely um, motivational and inspiring what you're doing. So it's like, you, like I remember when I was doing the album for my cousin or doing any like horizon or other projects would be like, when you're in the zone, I, I could go a whole day without eating. I could forget about what time it is because you you're outside of time. Basically you're not in Kronos. You're kind of in Kairos time where you're like, you're in a flow, you're in a flow. You're not focusing on that because you're in a zone where it's like, you're, it's so all consuming and it has to be because you are, you're, you're on the precipice of like what, what could be. Yep. And it's like, you don't want to be pulled out for a moment because just that moment could be enough that like you, you, you were holding a golden egg and you, and you it's gone. You don't get it back. Right. So, Yep. On the flip side, I also have a wife and th kids and I've learned over time that like there's a cost to that too and you can only sustain it for so long. So for me in my career, I would say, you know, when I was at Capcom, because I knew I had family responsibilities when I get home and I also had my second job at night, 
I was like, very like when I'm there, my head is down and I'm, so I wouldn't go and take an hour and a half lunch. You know, I'd be like, I'd come in early. I, I would just nail through and I was still delivering like hours and hours of music and stuff for it. But it was just, my focus was just when I was there, it was a very, um, how would you say, um, dedicated in a, like, I'm dedicated to, to outputting a lot of creative output here in service of the game. And I don't have time to waste on office politics or on, or on banter that is just kind of like, I mean, that, those things are great. It's really good to connect with colleagues and stuff, but usually that's like laughter in between takes and like you're laughing at yourself or other things like that. But you're really in pursuit of like a, a higher creative goal um, and and you surround yourself with people who support that, right? Like you, you kind of learn not to waste time with people who are going to just complain at work and are just going to like this kind of stuff. You'd be like, you try to surround yourself with like a chamber cast of people that you can rely on, you know, season after season, year after year. And then they're the people who lift you up when you need that extra, you know, boost of energy and stuff, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely just nodding along to all of that. Um, real quick. I want to circle back to when, your studio kind of got the gig to work on the Dead Rising yeah. IP. It sounds like when your studio president said, um, come up with a theme suite, am I hearing you correctly that 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 wasn't just for you to benefit from? The, 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 no. that, that was almost like helping to demo the studio, um, like as part of a larger package of here's our vision for this franchise. I mean, it really feels like you were, you were definitely lifting more than your own weight with that. Is that a fair take? Yeah, it's a fair take. Now, that being said, I think other departments had the same, like the art department and the cin cinematic department and whoever they were, they were all demoing stuff they had to do, but my music stuff was, um, really its own siloed thing, which is basically, you know, I had a couple of cutscenes that they were demoing that I had to do some stuff on, but I also had to come up with the main theme all the main character themes, all, right. defining the sound basically. Um, and it really, I would say it was the thing that kind of gave the emotional, it lifted everything up emotionally to a spot where they felt really good. I mean, remember they came with translators from Japan. It, a lot of stuff could have been lost in translation. It was a new thing. I know in high, in retrospect, we weren't the only studio they were going to, you know, a lot of times mm -hmm. they'll go and they'll get two or three studios to bid and try and they'll pick the best one. Um, so was, did, you know, did the music carry more weight representing the studio? Maybe all I do know is that I'm still good friends with, uh, Shin, Shin uh, O'Hara, who was one of the original producers that was on that. He went to Tango Gameworks afterwards. Um, so a lot of these relationships that we formed at that time, they were leaning on us to like wanting to bring it more to the Western audience. Um, and we were looking to them for like, Hey, this is like a way to pivot away from arcade baseball to like some other cool genres. Um, yeah, so we, kind of, like, we were leaning on each other in some sense. Mm. And it was kind of, it was forged in fire. And in the end, um, you know, like I said, we have some lasting relationships to this day, you know, and that was back in, you know, 2010, and stuff so right yeah so then um walk me through how sort of capcom 
became the next chapter? Yeah. So Capcom. So okay. So Dead Rising. Um, so Capcom bought out Blue Castle eventually because they were happy with what uh, Blue Castle did on Dead Rising Two. Um, basically, you know, we stopped doing uh, sports games for Two K um, at that time, and then we shifted completely to just working on Capcom IP, Dead Rising. Uh, you know, we did Dead Rising 2, uh, uh, Director's Cut off the record, and a bunch of DLCs. And then we went on to Dead Rising 3 and a bunch of its DLCs and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of became like this. This is the IP. This is what we're known for. It's a zombie horde game. It's like thousands of zombies on screen. The music that I kind of did for the first one was kind of trying to stay loyal to the first game because there's a lot of fans who loved um a lot of the music from the original, even the mall music, like there was a real strong attachment to a lot of these kind of um, this weird confluence of like survival horror with like kind of like, you know, poking fun at Amer- uh, North American kind of, you know, excess right. um, and um, kind of set in the mall. And then we also, my job was to also be like, okay, well, how can I add more life and more excitement? Because I personally, like, you know, I sure I grew up as a kid watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre at sleepovers and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not really a horror junkie. Like I'm, it's not. So I kind of was like, how can I, how can I still thrive in this environment where I get to like, you know, um, write music that's very eclectic but also support like the narrative needs and the story needs of this survival horror, Mm. which was kind of a cool challenge to be honest with you. In hindsight, it was kind of, you know, once you get really good at horror, you get really good at horror and you know what levers to pull and push. Mm. But my favorite part, to be honest with you, was all the diegetic music. Like I did hours and hours of stuff and it was just an excuse to like, do all the music that I just normally would do. Like I had a polka band when in, in high school called the pickled beats, um, which, um, like I love har- like amazing polka. Um, and so I was like, okay, well I'm going to write polka tunes for dead rising. I was like, we got mom music. I was going to do that. I did like, Too funny. I did every kind of genre you can imagine. And then I would also sing and bring in singers and would write tons of different songs, like Barry White songs or like these diva songs with like bar singers and country and like um, pretty much any genre you could think of. It was just throwing it all at the wall, right? It's funny because I was going to ask you. So, oh, so, so first off, I don't think I realized until you just now said it that with like the working for Capcom was because the studio had gotten acquired. I thought you had like changed you'd essentially kind of done a pivot that that relationship uh, afforded you to pivot. But I realized you were kind of absorbed. Um, we and that, that, that makes, that makes way more sense. Um, but uh, that's all on aside. What I was going to say was that what I love, uh, what I was going to ask and, and that I love hearing about is that because you had that background in, in sort of teaching yourself production, I, I was going to ask you if you had been able to, maintain any of that uh it's obviously a big part of that initial musical upbringing and and producing bands or anything like that was ever still a part of it it sounds like you essentially got to do that you know on the clock i I literally had carte blanche and in fact what was great was every year every year i would basically i was like okay i was like they did like i don't know six mall music tracks we're gonna do 10 you know i brought in i i wrote the main theme for dead rising 2 uh uh i was just like we got to make the boss battle tracks way harder, way punchier. So it's like I, 
um, there was a guy at the studio who was listening to Cell Dweller at the time. This is before Clayton was huge. And so we reached out, licensed a couple of his tracks. I was like, hey, Clayton, let's, let's, write, this, let's write this title track together. So I wrote the main theme, got uh-huh. him to co-write with me. We brought in uh, the singer from uh, um, Skinny Puppy, uh, Ogre, to sing on it as well. Like we, It was a killer track called Kill the Sound. You can find it on YouTube now. I think Capcom pulled, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, they pulled all the soundtracks cause, uh, off of Spotify and stuff, but you can still find uh-huh. all the stuff. But it's a great track but i got to like i i was using these games honestly as an excuse to just like work with any artist that i wanted to write any style of music that i wanted to um write songs that i wanted to and like um like i i on dead rising 3 i did an edith piaf song uh, like a type of song where i i sang in french pitched my voice up it's called uh, je chante je chante pour ma belle right so um you can also find it on YouTube. It's we did a Barry White song where I had a, a audio director of Apex Legends now, Devin Croucher. He was with me at Capcom, and I would basically lay down the uh, framework for a Barry White kind of like ooh song, and and we would record it, but then I'd pitch it down and change the format, and it sounds awesome. But it was it was literally like we were just having a hoot, just like just literally because the world was such that my job was to like uh, create this potpourri of musical um, expression and also like almost giving players, I felt it was my job to give players because imagine they're playing a hack and slash zombie game in a mall in the middle of America with like blood spurting all over the screen and zombies. And they either have the Muzak that's playing, you know, which they already knew. I was like, okay, well, what can I do to like, almost be like, Hey, this is like, when else am I going to be able to play my role as a ethnomusicologist or an educator of like, there's actually a lot of amazing music in the world that you've probably never heard of. And so there would be malls in the store that I'd write tunes for, for all different parts of the world. And it was just, I felt like it was my mission to like, basically just add as much life into this game where there was tons of death right and 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 this this kind of contrast was like for me it was motivating because it kind of helped pull me through the stuff that was you know you're doing year after year after year of dark horror yeah it kind of gets to you right um so i found that this contrast was really uh something that helped goad me along through the process but i also did stuff like on dead rising three uh, some other title tracks and credits and opening credits. I did like a Requiem for the Dead um, piece kind of in a Radiohead style. It was a song called Please Remember My Name, which had actually got first round Grammy noms back before um, before games had its own category and stuff. So um, did that kind of stuff. Um, went on to do Dead Rising 3, Dead Rising 4. Those changed. So Dead Rising 3 was more kind of a post-apocalyptic um grittier setting in uh fictional la um so did more of a um, uh you know more latino kind of uh, in- influence and a bit more punk rock uh dead rising four we ended up doing in the midwest i think it was in kind of in colorado area or something like that and so I ended up working with a bunch of musicians in nashville um we did big band we recorded in the country of georgia and rec- did like three weeks of recording where we did a um georgian uh, big band yeah, so like you know the country like the yeah. Soviet yeah, country. Of course, yeah. We uh 
so that project was kind of cool. Um, we. It always wanted- amazes me when like big band is one of those quintessentially American uh, sort of musical forms. And yet there are pockets of the world where they do it like Japan. You think of jazz in the, it's it's like permeation into the sort of Japanese musical mindset, you yeah. know, and you look at like obvious examples like Yoko Kano or somebody where you're like, this shit is unbelievable. And, yeah. and it's, 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 it is so deeply foreign to them, but just, but, but yet you would never know it. If anything, they, you know, they've, there's just pockets of the world where they picked it up and, 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 breathed it in on such a level of depth and mastery that's but but georgian big band is new to me that's one i well, never so, heard of so the thing to remember is there was there are so many legendary soviet jazz players like um and musicians over the years and georgia was one of the you know they have a huge jazz scene out there uh and in terms of like the um culturally the the, the people themselves mm. it's it's like a um it's ingrained in them, kind of like, um, you know, some countries, everybody sings. Right. And they really have, so big band, jazz, different trios and stuff like that. We ended up, um, yeah, basically we did like trios, quartets, full big band, the whole bit. We would Amazing. do rearrangements. I worked with uh, Robert Elhai. Um, yeah. uh, Orchestrator, know, yeah. He's amazing. Danny Elfman. Along with Goldenthal. Yeah, like big guy. Um, and he's an amazing guy. His kid loved Dead Rising. So when I reached out to him, he's like, hey, I need some help with some orchestration for this. Would you like, you know, awesome. charting, doing some charts? And he's like, yeah, my oldest son, he'd think this is cool. Let's do it. And, and so <laughs> I love those did, kinds of, that's like, that's like Hans Zimmer once said that the reason he did the Lion King is because he kept doing all these very adult movies like Tony Scott movies. And he wanted to be right. able to bring his kid to the premiere of right. a movie for once, you know, and, and, and like show off as a cool dad. And that's why he did the Lion King. Like, I love, I love the, that that's just as an inroad or like an access point it's funny how those things happen but like we ended up doing a lot of um public domain stuff um where we take public domain songs do new arrangements of them set for big band or trios or stuff um there's a a great jazz um new up-and-coming um sax player and singer called braxton cook he's based on new york he has his own quartet i believe um and he had reached out to me or I had reached out to him. No, he reached out to me on LinkedIn. It was just like, hey, I'm a jazz guy. I'm just finishing up school. Um, I love video games. If there's anything you can do. So I listened to this stuff. I'm like, wow, you're really good. So I was like, hey, Braxton, you want to help? Uh, let's get your jazz you know, ensemble and let's track a bunch of like Christmas stuff because this game was set in Christmas. And uh we did a bunch of Tony Bennett kind of style singing tracks on that. We, I think we did like, I don't know, 20 songs, maybe 30 songs on it. Um, we did a whole Christmas album, actually part of it. And then that project we also recorded, we spent like three weeks recording. Um, we wanted to create, we created our own interactive music system at Capcom um, where it was kind of like a Shostakovich Penderecki style horror engine where it would basically self score. We recorded like weeks and weeks of, um, you know, um, aleatory stuff yeah. and effects and just, but like chug chugs and stuff, um, where the system would play back, um, new stuff all the time, but we could change the meter and we could change the timing and the tempo at runtime based on what the user was playing and how many zombies were on screen. And it would be Very triggering cool. all these live recordings that we had, but essentially it was like this 
horror music machine <laughs> that was basically just going along. Um, and so, you know, again, it was like a, just a cool project where it was just like using it as an excuse to try new stuff and, you know, mixing a bunch of funny stuff with a bunch of serious stuff. And then with a bunch of songs in between to make it really a lot of fun. So yeah, uh, Capcom was a blast. It, it, it really, um, uh, it's one of those where I, it never fails to amaze me doing these chats on this show and just in life, we sit down to a lunch with somebody, how sometimes in the most unassuming places you can find the a level of depth and artistry and commitment to craft that s- on the one hand, I just am in awe of. On the other hand, there's also this poignancy of, I hope that players uh, had a semblance of a pre- of understanding and gratitude to the level of care that was being given. Because, you know, it's one thing if it's The Last of Us sure. or something where f- from the beginning, first teaser trailer, there's that aura of, this is everyone firing on all cylinders. So there's an expectation. Yeah. In fact, if anything, they've got that working against them where if it's anything other than 10 out of 10, diamond grade, best of the best, it's trashed as though it's crap because the expectations are so high. But right. there's yeah. so many games out there where you take one inch in, step into it and you realize people are really going all in to ensure that this is a great experience. and. What you're describing, you've talked to me about this stuff before, and I knew this to a degree, but you've you've really kind of blown my mind here in the last few minutes of just the extent that you went to for this. We did. I kid you not, on the last Dead Rising 4, uh, I think we did 12 hours of music for it. Um, and, and we're talking like a crazy wide range of stuff, but I'm a maximalist that way. Like I will be no like, shit. <laughs> like I'm, and, and it's not like, I don't, I'll be blunt and honest. Like, yes, we need to serve the games, but let's be honest. These are like, this is, we're spending like there's precious time in life. Like I want to make sure that whatever I'm touching and what I'm doing, like there's depth to it. There's richness to it. And it's like life giving. I'm like, I don't want to be like, I could spread pablum and just copy paste a bunch of the same stuff on the screen, you know, and say the same thing over and over again. But I'm like, why? I'd be better to just have silence. Right. So, so, and some of the times, some of the times it's like, I would rather use this as an excuse to just connect with more musicians. I remember I brought in, um, uh, John, uh, he was the trumpeter that just died last year. Uh, uh, he worked with Brian Eno. Oh, what was his name? Uh, John. I'm not sure I know. Uh, he worked with uh, um, Blanking. He, I, I brought him in on Dead Rising 4 as a composer. Um, John, John. Sorry, I just got to find this because um, um, John Trumpet. He was on Warp Records. Uh, Experimental J- John Hassel. Mm, I don't know. Oh, you have to listen to his stuff. Um, he's kind of like a, a crazy American um, genius uh, ex- trumpeter. He knows he worked with all of the um, all the top people, like um, in film, and he worked with Brian Eno and all these kind of people. Anyways, long story short, I brought him in 
just because I wanted to work with other people and try stuff. So yeah, I just kind of like, I get that. I was just like, okay, let's just shove him in. I mean, he was in his like seventies, I think at the time when I brought him in. Um, but I'm like, Hey, let's just find a place to peg him in. I'm like, this guy's contributed so much to the world of music. I'm like, I'm going to find a way I got a budget. I'm just going to dedicate not tons, but I'm going to dedicate some time and kind of like make sure that we recognize the amount of contribution that somebody like this has made make sure it fits in the, into the actual game so that it works. But I was like, you know, these are games. We got lots of money. There's, there's treasure troves everywhere. We should be totally like mining these troves and like trying to put stuff in rather than, you know, the annoying thing, which is like, I find it within games, there's so much self-referential work going on where it's like, Oh, we want the music like that game. I'm like, really? Like, you're not thinking of like architecture from the last thousands of years, or you're not thinking of like music that's not synced to media. Like, does it have to be this movie, which referenced this movie, which referenced this movie? Does every Preach single key art, man. Yeah. Right. And what does every key art uh, poster have to have that color palette again? Yeah. You, know? it, you sound like John Powell who, when, you know, he does a lot of Q and A's and they'll say, what is your recurring advice for young composers? And he says, listen to something other than fucking soundtrack albums uh, is something that he, he often yeah. says. Now I, I'm always a little bit easier on that one where I say someone like John Powell or Ludwig Gordonson or Dan Pemberton, you know, or a yeah. handful of others are, are very worth listening to. Um, but in part because they beautifully synthesize this eclectic blend of, influences yeah, they, you know they curate, and, and, they curate beautifully right so yeah exactly and and they clearly are not just trying to sound like the next Hans Zimmer or or John Williams or whomever but but they listen to a lot of a lot of stuff you know like Dan Pemberton and I were talking about he worked on um the Harley Quinn movie with Margot Robbie and he was saying how like there was a very specific type of guitar playing from Rage Against the Machine that was like mm. very influential for how he was approaching a certain aspect of that score. And it's one of those where if you just never got out of that silo, you would not appreciate the wide range in which other people make music in the world. So Absolutely. supremely preaching to the choir there. Uh, but, you, but just coming back to your point about like um, – the amount of energy that people put in that mm -hmm. do the gamers know the amount of work that we put in? Probably not. And I mean, there's lots of people that do stuff in the world that never goes noticed, you know, and lots of silent like contributions that people have made where we, we benefit off of it and we take it for granted. That being said, I wasn't doing it for other people. Right. Like this was, I, I was as my job was to do it, but ultimately I was like, what is feeding my soul and what is feeding me energy throughout this process? I'm like, you know, there's a reason why we're always chasing like that amazing sonic uh, world. It, there's a reason why we're spending so much time on the last 5% of a mix mm. or the last 5% of, of an orchestration just to make sure that everything is perfectly balanced because it's like, once it's done, we know we're not coming back to it. It's like we're moving on. And, and so if this is something, and I think our goal a lot of the times is, at least one of my goals is I like to try to create music which eventually is timeless, you know, ultimately that is something which can stick around. And whether it's like, you know, like the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and it's in your Walkman for another 20 years or whether it's like the next generation or 100 years from now, but I want to create stuff which has some 
DNA and some kernels in it that are like worth sharing again, right? So, so did the Dead Rising players recognize the depth of the music that was there 15 years ago? Probably not. I did. Ha- I've had some others who are like, I was, I got some notes on social media from a couple of people that are like, I was going through a really dark time in my life. And this mall music track saved me. I was like, what? What? A hack and slash mall music track. But to your point, it was like, for whatever reason, if you, if you put everything that you can into what you're doing, and you are, and you're kind of trying to be attuned, kind of like we try to tune with musicians, with instruments, with each other to resonate, so that there's this buildup of energy which just multiplies exponentially. In the same way, you don't know how you know as long as that you're doing that, and that you're like committed to the craft and to the purity of of trying to pursue something as deeply and as richly as you can. Then, like I said, even in mall music in a hack and slash, you know, horror survival game, somebody is going to sense something in it, you know, that might feed them that you weren't expecting and stuff. And I think that is, that's the reason why as modern composers working in media that have a really wide range of reach, I think it's something that we really have to, um, you know, take stock of like the impact that what we do has on people. You know, if we, if we, if we sow like, you know, more destructive stuff or, or if we cheapen out on our approach to something, it's like you literally just wasted somebody's five minutes of their life that they will never get back to again with stuff that is substandard. And it's like, if I think of the timeless stuff, the art, the poetry, the film, anything that is like worth that feeds us as human beings whether it's architecture that we walk through in space or whether it's like paintings or thoughts or archetypes, it's all these things, which there's forms, which are life giving and, and, and the ones which are destructive, you sense it, right? Like you, you sit through something and you're like, this either doesn't do something for you or it actually affects you in a negative way. And so I personally take that really seriously uh, in a sense of there's like an onus on us as artists to understand the weight of what we put out into the world. Now, in games, it's a popular form, art form and entertainment form, which, you know, a lot of it is artifice and veneer. But I do feel that people sense what's below the surface and they do sense kind of the the richness or the DNA that is underneath there. And so that's why I think we have to be really careful of what how we how we how we construct it and how we think about it. I I could not agree more. I think I think another way to frame that would be. If if you treat it as pure artifice and veneer, then anybody who crosses paths with it, who might be needing something in their life more meaningful will not get it from that thing that you made. But even if one out of 10,000 people who might play the game uh, actually crosses paths with it at that moment where they need something that is more substantive or made with that much care and love, that it will hit them, or at least it stands, it stands a chance. I, um, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that's a great way you summarized it because, you know, on a game like horizon, I've had a lot of people reach out to me about how much 
a lot of the music has impacted them emotionally, but mm. not just emotion, just for the sake of emotion, but it actually tied to like, um, again, there's an undercurrent there, which resonates with them and either their suffering that they're going through or whatever it is. And oh, that yeah. one's a little different. That one's a little different because the, the, the narrative and the work, uh, the, the world that the kind of the main characters are going through already lends itself to that. But I think right. it's still, it's still, it, it, it shows us that, you know, music is very powerful as universal language. And it's some, it's a, it's an energy form, which you have to be careful how you wield it. Right. You know? Well said. I, that's a great segue because obviously I really want to talk about horizon. Um, uh, I'm still, I'm still working my way through every, uh, we've had the flight on here. Um, right, haven't, on haven't, nice. yeah, I haven't made it to, um, Yoris yet, but, uh, um, I really love, I loved the first score a lot. Um, mm. and then I re and then when the second one came out, I remember at the time I, I had been in this minor, totally, uh, inconsequential car accident, but in yeah. consequential insofar as like I always frame it like, cause I don't want to even plant the seed that there were, there were no injuries on anyone's part, but it was just one of those hit just right that my car had to be junked hmm. even though i barely even felt the impact it just was one of those really unlucky things and but my studio is not that far from home and so i and it was the middle of the pandemic everything had switched to zoom and so hmm. i was like or it was actually uh where was it relative to the it might have been right before the pandemic actually but it, but whatever it was i i thought you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do something very anti-la and i'm just gonna not get another car and I went a little Your over, bike, right? yeah, I rode my bike for about a year. I, I went and bought a bike. I didn't even own a bike. I went and bought a bike and thought I'm going to ride my bike to the studio. And I was able to hold that up before I finally caved and, and bought a car that now I flip back and forth between the two. But nice. I, but I, uh, I went over a year, like 14 months, something like that of solely relying on a bike in LA. Wow. Super novel way to live in LA. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I love to it, I uh, loved about it is I found myself listening to way more audiobooks than normal and mm. way more music than normal uh, because I can't, obviously we can't write music sure. and listen to music at the same time, the way a lot of people listen while they're at work or while they're doing stuff. I can't, I can't even have music on in the car while I'm trying to talk to somebody. I just cannot multitask with music on sure. my focus goes entirely onto the music. It's really hard for me. I don't like it. If I'm at a concert, someone whispers in my ear because then I can't, I lose both. I lose the music and I can't really understand what they're saying. Yeah. So I just, I found that it was so nice to just be in this meditative bike riding space. I got headphones on. I got some pretty nice ones that were nicely compatible with riding a bike. And so it was one of those delightful things that Horizon comes out. I remember I'd really liked, I'd loved the, the, the sort of magical blend of that sort of fun futuristic futurism synth yeah. not really synth wave but you know taking that whole sort of notion pushing it somewhere novel and then mashing it up with this kind of interesting sort of tribal you know like sort of pre-civilization sense of 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 primal kind of uh, percussion and i'd really liked how that came together in the first one and some really interesting just uh, you know beautiful Julie's vocals and there was just a lot to that I really loved about it. Yeah. So it was a wonderful surprise 
when I, and I remember saying this to you at the time, but I'm reiterating it for the sake of our listeners that I would be riding my bike and I would have it. I'd have like Spotify in my pocket. And so I, and I don't, so I have no like way to know what I'm listening to. I would just, I remember it came out and I, I always like to see what my friends and colleagues are up to. So I'll, I'll listen to a bit of it. That one yeah. was intimidating because it's a 75 hour album, but <laughs> I, um, I, uh, it happened like six times in a row. I'd be riding along and I'd be like, fuck, this is great. This is, this is, this is great. Even in the context of a score I love time and again, get out my phone, check. And it was one of yours. And I just mm. thought, God damn, like what a, what a, what a wonderful voice. And, and I like all of it. That is not to the disparagement of the other composers involved. Uh, but you really brought something that, that sparkled, man. It really, it, it crackled uh, to use the same pivot you did earlier. Uh, it, it, it really, uh, it, um, there was some fresh, both in the, the beautiful, like obviously, you know, the kind of, uh, single, if you want to call it, uh, in the flood, uh, yeah. some gorgeous writing, but even the, the kind of, um, combat just go fucking savage. It was, <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, it was really, I was listening going the, the kind of polymetric, Keep me on my toes. I never quite know where one is going to land. Right. Uh, it was great stuff, man. So how, how did you end up – just walk me through your Horizon experience. This is Horizon Forbidden West for those who uh, I realize we didn't specify on the sequel. How, yeah. how did that come to be? And, and to walk me through your, your experience of slotting in because it's always challenging to join an IP that mm -hmm. set, especially one that has a pretty strong sense of identity uh, that this one did yeah. in, in the best sense. No, well, first of all, thank you. Um, it means a lot coming from you, so I appreciate that. And back, I remember back when you shared that stuff, that was really, really encouraging. Um, well, first of all, we had a killer music team. I mean, Alexis and and uh, Joe. Joe, The Flight, uh, Joris, and Niels van der Liest, and uh, uh, Lucas uh, was our uh, music supervisor as well on that. So they already had a really established a really solid sound from the from Zero Dawn. Mm -hmm. um, I had so the, the where it all started was I was at Capcom and my oldest son at that time he was younger, but he was take your kid to work day, <laughs> and and I brought him. And so part of that take your kid to work day was just like hey get show them what you do. And then at one point there was a break in between. I was like hey let's go. There's this place where we play our peers games and we just you know review it together and i'd never heard of or played horizon zero dawn and it was there i was like yeah let's just plug it in yeah. and then put it in and i was just like i heard yours's music for the opening scene i was like this is really beautiful i was like and you have to remember this was after being at capcom for like almost a decade and i'm like I have this whole other side of my life that people have not heard the beautiful music that I do. I'll do a lot of sacred choral music, a lot of yeah. chamber writing and this kind of stuff. I was just like, and I heard this, I was like, the light bulb just went out. I was just like, I gotta get like, I gotta get writing stuff that's closer to my wheelhouse. As fun as the Capcom stuff was, I was just like, I gotta write some right. beautiful stuff. And so anyways, long story short, one of the audio producers that we had at Capcom uh, left, he ended up going and joining the gorilla team. Um, so this was like maybe nine months after this, take your kid to work day. Uh, and I reached out to him just like, Hey, uh, I see that you're at gorilla. 
I, I watch this, listen to this stuff. I think it's beautiful. I don't know if they're working on anything else next, but I'd love a chance to like pitch or just see something going on. Many months goes by, get a, I get a email from him. He's just, he's just like, yeah, we've gone through rounds and rounds of composers because we were trying to find somebody to slot in, to mm. fit in with the original team. And they're like, would do you want to do a pitch? I was like, yeah, sure. So anyways, long story short, did the pitch for it. They had two pieces I had to do. I did like an underwater thing and I had, they were like, write a new theme basically like to for a sequel basically and uh yeah they loved it hit it off and then basically was the, I, I assume was, they were because there's already multiple composers was it just the notion of of scope and timeline and just feeling like there's just so much also, to do there was scope but also um it was much more ambitious in terms of the amount of um emotional um uh, you know, writing that they wanted. They, they basically, they wanted to really lean into the emotion of Aloy, the main character, mm -hmm. because the fans really resonated with her and her story and her story arc. Sure. And um, there was just, you know, hours and hours of music to write. And they were like, Yoris was really the only one who was really doing that kind of melodic harmonic development. Um, right. And they, they were like, we need somebody else to come in and essentially help do the equivalent or more for the next one. Cause there's just, there's lots of cinematics and there's lots of this development. So, um, for whatever reason, they thought I was a great fit. And so then they flew me to Amsterdam. I met the whole team, did the whole stiff sniff test with Joe and Alexis and yours and Niels. And we all got along. Um, it was cool, a great team. And then it was just, yeah, we basically just started. And so what that did was I left Capcom actually in, I think it was August or September, because my goal was eventually, I was like, okay, I can't do another decade here. I, there's so many other types of games and films and projects that I want to do. And I can't, if I'm in-house as an in-house composer and, and music director, I can't do this kind of stuff. So I had an exit plan already. And basically Horizon was my ticket to get out, basically. Mm. And so um, I got the gig, quit, started my own company with a colleague called Interleave. And at that time, there was about four of us. We were doing audio and music and tech for video game, AAA games and stuff like that. And so that kind of horizon was my main gig that I would work on. And then I'd be developing the business at the same time during that. And so for those four years, worked there, did horizon, went to Amsterdam, came back, did that kind of stuff and kind of went through that four years. And then now, you know, horizon released, um, did the DLC burning shores for it as well. Um, and then in the meantime, built a company and now we have about 20 full-time people working for our team. Um, so we have a music team with like three or four composers, music producer and supervisor. And then we have a audio team of like amazing sound designers. And then we have a tech team of like software engineers, tech artists and stuff that are building like all the audio and music systems for like big triple quad a games and stuff. So, um, and we're actually developing some of our own IP and music based stuff as well. So it's kind of cool. In the same way that at Capcom, I was a maximalist and wanted to really go deep and wide. Um, this ability to like be the, because I'm the creative director for the company and a co-founder. So then it, it allows me to like do projects like a horizon where people that like my voice and recognize my musical voice, I can work on these bigger kind of projects. Um, but then kind of putting on the creative director hat, I'm also doing a lot of mentorship. Mm. I'm doing a lot of outreach and kind of contributing to the next generation of composers and the kind of 
you know, because I was an audio director for many years at Capcom as well. It wasn't just music. And so I have a really good ear and a really good kind of talent and understanding how there's this confluence of really challenging technical challenges that you have, plus creative challenges and being a catalyst and trying to like work with game directors and film directors. And like, you know, we do a lot of work even on with Netflix and Disney where we do on set music direction for like big musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, we're, it's again, it's just another me- melange of a bunch of interesting things. And it's really, it's about really important relationships uh, with like some world-class creatives, um, working with people that you want to work with, expanding that world to hear the musical voices and the artistic voices of people that we feel should be celebrated and, and, and their musicianship or their voices should be coming out. Um, and then, and then marrying that with also this technical side, which I had, you know, I never would have experienced had I not worked in house at a development studio, you know, learning how to speak to a software engineer, learning how to speak to a technical director, learning how to speak to business people who are on the publishing side who have completely different challenges, but they, they have also creative challenges. And, um, you know, there's, so I end up building bridges between all these different people, the executives where you need to upward manage. And then the people who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting of the actual dev work, they have to downwards manage. And then there's this kind of sphere of audio directors, music directors, art leads and stuff like that, who are like the people who are responsible for the pillar of games and understand that their job is to basically come together as a, a tribe and a team that are going to like execute on this creative vision that they want to release in a couple of years. So, so I'm in a position where I get to like still write music, but I'm able to interface and really contribute meaningfully to people that are operating at these different levels uh, throughout the development cycle. So it's, it's, it's very I would say realistically, I'm spending too much time on the business side and less time in creative, but I'm, I, I'm making changes now where I'm like, I only do meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays is nothing but creative. I do nothing else. And my hope is in the next year or two that I can get back to just all I'm doing is either writing my own stuff, helping catalyze creative things, conversations, mentor, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we have some ambitious projects and I have some personal projects that I also want to develop. So it's, it's, you know, when you have your own business, your own team, sometimes you just gotta, you're the, the buck stops with you. So you have to put in the time, but my hope is that as I, you know, in a couple in the next couple of years, I can transition back to just pure, pure creativity and stuff. So. No, well, I'm, I'm so, I was going to tee up to ask about it or leave. I'm so happy that, that, um, it sort of naturally, went there uh because it's it's extremely impressive i mean the growth of it when you first told me about it i was blown away that it had already kind of made it to a scale that it was because it's not a small thing you know when when i talk to folks and they are like oh i run a i run a game studio and there's 30 of us we're very small i think just because the naughty dogs out there or the sony santa monica's or the larians or whomever make 30 look small or ubisoft you know where it's like fifteen thousand. Um, th- to, to have your decisions, uh, impact the salaries, the livelihoods, the fiscal viability of even just one other person is it's a truly a massive responsibility. It, it's very much, it's very much a, a cousin of what you were saying before of there's almost a sacredness to 
when someone is entrusting their finite hours of their life to your thing yeah. that you put out there, whether it's a piece of music you wrote or a video game you've participated in, that shouldn't be taken overly lightly. And uh, and obviously, someone deciding I'm gonna I you know I'm looking for work. You need a sound designer. I yeah. do sound design. Okay, let's do it. It's not just a convenience. You you really. There's a, there's a burden of responsibility there, and and I, you know you you you're the kind of guy with the integrity and just the mindset that that clearly is not lost on you at all, uh, but it comes through even just in everything that you say. I think it's lovely, and and I'm I'm really glad that it sort of is a thing we could talk about here as well because it's a wonderful thing I think for others, especially any composers who would listen to mm. this later, to just. I love that all the different paths that a composer's life can take are kind of yep. gradually illuminated through the course of this podcast and all the different conversations that I've had. But yours is pretty pretty distinct, even among the natural diversity that emerges just by virtue of different career paths, because that, sure. that really is a bit of a different uh, course. And it's fascinating. It's very cool to well, hear about. I think, you know, if we're talking about other composers who listen to the podcast, I would say that would be my one, I don't. I try not to give advice unless I'm asked about it, but that would be kind of riffing off what you're talking about is, you know, in my own career path, it was the fact that I put in five years of working on stuff that I had no clue what I was doing, but I was willing to put in the hundred hours a week to make it happen in service of, they took a risk on me when I said, I don't like games, but yeah, let's try this. Right. Um, and then, that relationship was like, okay, we're, we're, we're locked. We're going to, we're going to do something here. And you, you give without expecting anything in return. Right. Like I remember, um, I think it was trolls from 8DO said this uh -huh. at one point, somebody had asked him something, but he basically was something to the effect of like, you know, when you, when you're in your twenties and even in your thirties, like just say yes to everything and don't expect anything return, do whatever you can to help somebody bring their vision to life as best as you can. And because what you, what you end up doing is you, now there's cases where that can be taken advantage of. And there's obviously clearly cases of composers, tr big composers taking advantage of people and not giving credit where credit was due. Sure. And, you know, but let's assume that it's not that and it's benign, but it's just more of like, I think it's a healthy thing for you as a uh, somebody who wants to pursue a life that's creative. If you see it as like a, like you said, a sacred task or some kind of a thing where your job and your role is like, okay, there's only one of you. There's no other people like you in the world, right? There's no other snowflake. That's the same. It's the same thing with us. It's like, we're all snowflakes that are unique. Right. So, um, but in a sense, like, can you harness all of your energy and everything that is unique about you, but not to just serve you and your own motives? Can you do it in a way when you're starting out where you can channel that and help somebody, you know, flesh out their world? Or if it's not a person and it's an indie game, indie dev studio, can you pour everything into it and be like that trusted person that, that they know that they want to be in the, in the, you know, in the, um, in the fire with basically, because that's where you create those bonds that last for years and years and decades even is because you, you know, you're like, I don't exactly know how I'm going to solve this creative problem or this technical problem, but I'm committed to it and we're going to make it through it. And they remember, they remember looking at you being like, we had no clue what the heck we were doing here, but we got out on the other side, we released a project and 
they remember that and that's what binds you together. And it also keeps you in good stead for the future because I feel like if you expect nothing in return, but you just commit to excellence and you commit to like uh, real integrity in like trying to deepen your craft, trying to deepen your relationships that are like real, when it happens, you don't, you're not in control of, but I guarantee you it's going to happen at some point and it's going to be an exponential curve. Like, you know, for me, it happened to be that horizon was that, that point, which allowed me to have this, but it took like two decades to get to that place of like, you know, the reason that like the, the, well, a, the music team from zero dawn trusted me with their stuff and their sound was because, I just learned to flex this muscle of like, Hey, how can I be a great partner? How can I help make this something that's special where, which, which doesn't devalue what you've already contributed, but also recognizes that I have something unique with my voice to contribute, to add to it, you know? Um, and I couldn't have done that and couldn't have had them feel secure had I not flexed that muscle in all those two decades before of practicing that. So that would be, probably the biggest thing I would suggest, like, of course, do your training, get good at your production and all that kind of stuff. But like, I think just that desire to want to go deep and wide and to, to offer yourself to other people and to, um, to kind of be willing to do whatever needs to be done to help people. The return on investment is just, it's immeasurable, um, what it does for you as a person, but also creatively, because you're always expanding in that way, right? You're, you're always looking for connections. You're always thinking, how can I help this person? And then you hear from somebody, oh, well, this person said this and they tried this. And all of a sudden you become this link that for them, and you, and you are, you're in some ways, you're kind of teaching them like to pattern how they will treat their employees or how they will treat other people that they interface with. Right. So it's a win-win. Um, it's not a zero sum game. It's like very much like a, a win-win. And at some point it just takes off exponentially. So I, I cannot fathom a better note to end, uh, this chat on than that, man. That was a fantastic kind of tirade, uh, on, Sorry, yeah. uh it's a little verbose, but not at all, dude. I, I, I intentionally just, at some point I realized you're, you're, you're bringing the ship into port so beautifully. I'm just going to let you, uh, run with it, uh, rather than, than kind of riff on it with you or pick it apart because that, that was fantastic. I mean, that was really, uh, I, at minimum, I am in deep agreement with you. If not, that's just great advice objectively uh, because well, I, uh, I love it. I think it. it's something that you do also, right? Like I commend you on that. It's like, you know, not that we're handing over the baton, but we're not spring chickens either, right? Like at a certain point, there has to be like an outward, outward look to the next generation of creatives, yeah. right? I, I look at it as um, the most succinct way to describe the kind of underlying philosophy below all of it at kind of bedrock first principles for me with a specific regard to the game industry part of the reason why i do this podcast or the stuff i put on youtube or going to events and things like that yeah is to hopefully leave the game industry in some marginal way better than i found it and yeah. even if that's a fraction of a percent movement uh, the the goal is to have a net positive contribution, and and because in part, I 
play games. I, I'm a massive game lover. I play games every single day of the week, whether for a minute or for an hour. I love talking about them. I love thinking about them. I love working with players. And so it's, you could argue it's a selfish instinct to say, what can I do that will yield better games? You know, like, and and, because that sometimes manifests as someone will approach me and say, are you interested in pitching on this game? And then, you know, conversation leads to another where I think, I actually think you would be better off going with X. And Mm. as much as I would love to be part of it, um, the net goal is what's the best version of the game industry. And if I think you're going to gel with this other person better than me, if I don't feel like I'm necessarily the great fit for you, it's in violation of the, of the deeper principle to, to yep. go, well, I value having a job now more than this bigger goal of a better game industry. But the truth is, I think that you'll make a better game with somebody else than with me in this particular instance for X, Y, Z reason. Or and of course, sometimes you have to really, it's a real test, you know, where you're yeah. like, I really do want that job though, but but I, I can feel that I'm not the right fit. And there's time, and I've probably failed in that test sometimes in terms of like personal integrity tests. But yeah, so but, that's where, yeah, everything you're saying, man, I, I just so resonate with. But to your point, like you, when you, when you're your best version of yourself and you're like, no, you know, actually this is better suited for somebody else. It takes security and guts to, to make that kind of a call. But again, the, the, the ripple effect is that you've now patterned something for somebody else to be like, oh, so there is a better way to do this. Yeah. There is a better way to treat people. There is a better way to like not look at every composer as a threat. It's like, oh, what, dude, a, I what don't, a waste of energy, right? I, like, I, I one of the best stories that I ever have come across that I was that I was very happy to, you know, make sure got recorded for posterity on this podcast was um, when Gordy Hab was up for uh, his first real time at bat on a star Wars game. Like he had been, you know, he had helped out as part of the broader LucasArts team on like the old yeah. Republican stuff. But I think it was on star Wars battlefront where he was, you know, in a position to really pitch for it as the composer and they didn't know him. Chance Thomas was also up for it. And, uh-huh. and he said, you guys should, really listen to Gordy's music. And he, even in the midst of his own demo process, he advocated for Gordy and, and Gordy said he, he got on authority from the audio director that that is what made them like go sifting through the mountain of reels and really give him a shot. And I mean, look what, look what has come out of that. I mean, it's a decade of, of the highest level. And I think both of you guys made it on Grammy uh, noms this year, right? (laughs) Yes, we are. And we are in, Friendly, uh, uh, spirited competition with one another. Uh, uh, and yeah, and I, I told him I would, I, I'm all too happy to lose to him. And maybe by the time this airs, I will have already lost to him if that's the case. And all, you know, well earned to me because that's not, that's not a, that's like that at this point in my mind, it's not just really for that score. It's really like the body of work as well because yep. the Star Wars, what, what he and, and Steven in particular on those two games, but he, more broadly in battlefront and yeah. squadrons and so many others um, brought a level of class of orchestral writing. Mm. That's just that, that John Williams level of, of craftsmanship is not a lot of folks can hit that mark. I mean, it's that specific, that very traditional romantic capital R treatment of the orchestra 
Very yeah. few things even call for that. And those that do, not a lot of people have just the baseline ability to, to write on that level. It is a very specific thing. And they they really do have that, and, and it's 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 astounding. And I love that there's games out there. You know, credit to Steve Schnur and EA for going. You know, we like that. Sign us up for thirty hours of it uh, yeah. over the over the next decade. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I was just talking uh, yesterday. I actually, had a chat with Colin Andrew Grant, who did the music implementation for the Star Wars uh-huh. game. And we were talking through a bunch of this stuff. And again, it's like this hyper dedication to a world-class level of output. And it's, do the players, does every player notice it or recognize it? Probably not. But that, like, what's your option? Do, like, do you give like second best or, or do you just give your best? And I no. think that's the, in the nutshell, that's, you know, don't be insecure, give your very best and serve those around you. You'll be good, right? You'll get your gigs eventually. It might take you ten years, might take you fifteen years, but whatever. Like you'll you'll at least have done it in a way where you've actually the net uh, the net gain of like changing the world around you for and particularly within the games industry will be much better. Kind of like you're saying, like if I can leave you know the game industry a bit better, I guarantee you if, if more people like practice that, it'll be much much better. Preach, man. Let's let's call it there. I can't thank you enough okay. uh, for giving me so much time on one of your non-meeting days. And, <laughs> uh, and no, I call this is creativity, so it's all oh, good. It's great. I love it. Well, it feels the same for me, man. It's always the best of these. Always make me walk away afterward feeling just fired up and full of full of juice, you know. And you've you've absolutely done that for me today. I freaking love this. So thanks awesome. so much, dude. Um, and uh, and hopefully. Uh, you know, it won't be a year uh, to the day yeah, well, no, since we'll, I see we'll you in see. person again. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll we'll be hanging out soon. Make a point of it. All right, dude. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.